You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. And uh, would you all please open the Word of God with me to Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Luke 14, 7 through 11. Um, As some of you may have already seen, Pastor Sam and his family, uh, they have come back. They have returned from vacation. And Pastor Sam, (laughs) glad to see you back. And uh, Pastor Sam is eager to get back. He'll be uh, preaching next week's uh, sermon as well. So uh, we are glad to have them back and uh, looking forward to next week. Uh, but yes, so Luke 14, 7 through 11 is where we are today following uh, in the progression of Luke. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, you're going to need it. So please grab one underneath the chair in front of you in a basket. And I do want to kind of give us some encouragement why each one of us uh, who come to preach uh, say that every week, why we emphasize the importance of studying God's Word, and some, some uh, encouragement I want to give us is really uh, tied in with God's Word itself, what, why it's important for every believer uh, to study God's Word. It's, it's part of the way that we grow in our personal relationship with Christ. We cannot truly grow in our relationship with Christ without actually spending time in God's Word. This is also part of meditation on God's Word, why we memorize Scripture together, which we're going to get into and just a little bit of our monthly memory verse, uh, but it's vitally important for us. And then uh, we desire this to be true of ourselves as pastors and of our congregation, uh, that we would be described as the man described in Psalm chapter 1. Uh, it reads, uh, Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It says that his delight and he meditates, his meditation is on God's law. He, he takes this seriously. We want this to be serious about us too. It's, it's so important, so vital for the Christian life, for the Christian walk. And if you are following along with us in the yearly Bible reading plan, you'll know that we are in the Psalms. We're in Psalm 119. It's, not only is it the longest chapter in all the Bible, but it has everything to do with God's word. David wrote this, and it's not only the longest chapter, as I said, but everything that he's talking about is his desire, his meditation, his hope, his longing for the Word of God. That's all he wants, and that's, that's an amazing testament to how important God's Word is to him and to his, his uh, people. So we want that to be true of our people, ourselves, and for the husbands, as it is Father's Day, for the husbands of our church, we want uh, our husbands to be men who lead, sanctify their wives in the Word, as we see in Ephesians 5, same for parents, mothers, and fathers, to teach their children, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as we see in Ephesians 6. And Jesus prayed this himself for his disciples and those that would follow him in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. That's Jesus' prayer for those who would follow him. And then lastly, as, as we go into our uh, memory verse briefly, I just want to say, this is a, I was reading through Acts not too long ago, 
And uh, I noticed I came across Acts 17.11, where Paul and Silas are preaching to the Berean Jews. And uh, often they would preach to Jews and they would be, uh, they would be uh, rejected or hated because of what they were preaching. But in Acts 17.11, the Berean Jews, they, it says this, they, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They didn't reject the teaching. They didn't um, disregard what they were saying. They re- received it with all eagerness because they were being taught the word of God and they were eager to receive it. But they didn't just receive it on, on just whatever the man said. They went and searched it themselves. They studied it themselves. They spent time because they know how important God's word is. So they spent time searching it and studying it, which is a beautiful thing. And that's what we want for ourselves. We want for our people. I don't want you to take anything that I say. I know Pastor Sam and the others don't want you to take anything that we say just for on the surface level what we say. We want you to search the scriptures yourself. Um, so as we do that, let's be like the Bereans and let's... Uh, I, someone else has said that it's not my my coin, but um, let's let's be like the Bereans and let's search the scriptures together as we uh, recite our memory verse together, and then as we get into our text today. So, as you know, our, we have a new memory verse every every month. This month we're in Psalm sixty-seven, one through two. So it's going to be up on the screen. Let's read it together, and we're going to briefly just read it together, and then move on because we have a we have a lot to cover in our text today. So read it aloud with me. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let's read it one more time. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all the nations. Really uh, memorize this at home. I know Pastor Tanner, uh, Taylor had kind of given us a, a reason why he, he chose this, this verse. And it's a beautiful thing, especially ending in verse 2, that, you may know, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. The Apostle Paul says it in Romans 1.16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power for salvation to all who believe for the Jew uh, first and also to the Gentile. That's essentially what he's saying right there in the end of 2. It's, it's God's power, and that's what we should be hoping to make known. It's, it's the believer's job, not just the pastor's. It's, it's every single believer's job to make that known across the nations and in your backyard. All right, so now let's direct our attention to the text. Look with me to Luke 14, 7 through 11. I'm going to go ahead and read and follow along with me as I read, and then we're going to get into uh, the rest of the, the, the text. Starting in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your, when your host comes... You may, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Today in our text, Jesus is giving the lawyers and the Pharisees a parable. Uh, within the parable, there's this one main overarching point, which is the title of the passage. 
And it actually comes from verse 11 primarily. He, he sums it all up in his last verse. But the main point, the title of the sermon is, The Proud Will Be Humbled and the Humble Exalted. The proud will be humbled and the humble exalted. Uh, Jesus is teaching a parable on uh, pride or the issue of pride and humility, the way that every believer is called to live. This is what Jesus is showing within this parable. And last week, uh, Jesus, this is all together. He's invited to this uh, ruler's house, this uh, ruler of the Pharisee's house, and then he begins to teach after he healed the man Uh, on the Sabbath from dropsy. So this is all coinciding together. It's all coming together. It's actually going to go to uh, basically verse 24 in this chapter. But Jesus challenged the lawyers last week and the Pharisees, not only on their adding to the law or embellishing on the law, making fences around the, the true law, but also he showed their hypocrisy by only following the rules when it suited them. Remember he said that if your ox or your son were to fall in a pit, you wouldn't hesitate. You'd go and you'd get him out even if we were on the Sabbath. So Jesus was already causing some kind of controversy or, or uprift and, and, uh, by healing the man with dropsy on the Sabbath, uh, regardless of what the religious elite would say. It's, but we know that if you've been with us for a while, this isn't the first time that Jesus has healed someone on the Sabbath or uh, done some kind of uh, miracle or done some kind of work, in a, in a sense, on the Sabbath. It's not the first time. He's done it many times or several times before. But he further stirs it anyways, uh, because he's teaching them a lesson. It's actually a very merciful lesson that he's teaching them today in this parable. But he was invited, and in verse 7, he noticed that they, they chose or they elected seats of honor for themselves. Right? In verse 7, he says that he was, he was watching them. And now if you, if you know that you've been with us for a while, that we, the reason why we go through books of the Bible slowly is so that we don't miss these significant teachings. And when we do, we get to revert back to what we have learned in the past and say, look, this is why Jesus has been consistently doing what he's doing. He's got specific purposes behind everything that he does. And so now um, I want to bring us back just briefly to, to kind of some of the, the things that he has done and taught on uh, to show that the Pharisees, they really, they really hated Jesus. They, they found him to be a threat. That's why they were inviting him to this, this luncheon or whatever it was. That's why they're inviting him because they, they found him as a threat and they wanted to put something in his way so that they could discredit Jesus in front of the rest. But uh, if we were to go back and see that they, they were uh, constantly and consistently uh, trying to test Jesus in all these ways. And Luke 4 is where it starts. When Jesus preaches, it was as custom that he would preach and teach in the synagogues and the temples. And in Luke 4, he does that after he preaches through uh, the prophet Isaiah. And uh, he, they were speaking well of him at first, but then Jesus continues on to, to explain what will come, uh, what will happen, that they will quote a proverb to him to tell him to heal himself. But additionally, they were angered because Jesus gave uh, a teaching and a lesson on the prophet Elijah and Elisha, when God sent these prophets, to sent them to Gentiles, not to the Jews, to show that God sent to the Gentiles that it would bypass or overpass the uh, religious elite, those who saw themselves to be spiritually superior, and they were angered to the point where they wanted to kill Jesus. That was the very beginning of when they hated Jesus, so much so that they wanted to throw him off of a cliff. And then in Luke 5, Jesus heals a, a man who was paralyzed, and he has genuine faith in Jesus. And Jesus says that your faith 
uh, has, uh, or I've forgiven your sins because of your faith. And the Pharisees begin to question in their hearts of why Jesus would say that. They, they accused him of blasphemy, saying that only God could forgive sins. So they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't see him as God incarnate. They didn't acknowledge him as that. They were in, indignant toward him. And shortly after that, they grumbled and snarled at the, the disciples and at Jesus because they were sinning, sitting with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus uh, answers them by saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not calling the ones who believe themselves to be self-righteous in their own. He's calling the ones that know that they are sinners, to know that they are depraved, know that they have no good of their own. That's who he's come to save. And then in chapter six, they question Jesus about the disciples uh, taking grain from the grain field on the Sabbath because it was the Sabbath. They were putting these laws around it. And another Sabbath, Jesus heals another man with a, with a withered hand. And the Pharisees become, uh, they are filled with fury, it said, that they would discuss what they might do to Jesus. They were already plotting what they might do to Jesus. And then later they grumbled again uh, because Jesus said he forgave the sins of a woman in chapter 7. And then oftentimes they would put Jesus to the test, trying to catch him at fault. If you remember not too long ago, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of of Beelzebul, the Lord of Flies is what they referred him to, but it's just another word that they used to describe Satan. They were saying that Jesus cast out demons by Satan, which doesn't make sense, is what Jesus basically explained to them. He would be destroying his own kingdom. And then later, the Pharisees invited a Pharisee to, invited Jesus to dine with him, and then he becomes uh, astonished in a way because Jesus didn't do the ritual washings. He didn't cleanse his hands the way that the, the religious elite do before they eat. And then Jesus lets, lets them all have it after that. He basically explains their hypocrisy once again, uh, calls them out and, and says that you, you seek the, the, uh, the honored seats in the synagogues and the meeting places. And then they become angry, of course, because he's challenging them. He's exposing their pride and their hypocrisy. And he goes on and on and on. But it's not that their pride was just exposed. It's not that it was just coming to light. It's because Jesus was hitting, hitting them where it hurt. He was hitting them in their pride and showing them that you are not good enough. He was telling them that you are not righteous, although you believe yourself to be. And then in our previous chapter, chapter 13, Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath. Again, so he's done a lot of things on the Sabbath, and that's where we find ourselves now. But she was bent over at the waist, had a disabling spirit, and Jesus does what only he can do and casts out the demon, heals this woman that's bent over by the waist that has been for 18 years in the ruler of the synagogue, didn't even bat an eye at that. He was mad because he did something that this religious elite leader continues to tell people they can't do. And so they're angry at him, and now we're at this point in chapter 14 where they're trying to catch Jesus in something. And, and last week, Pastor Tanner taught us on that and explained that they, were, they only invited him because they wanted to discredit him. They only invited him because they wanted to catch him in some kind of fault. They wanted to, to see what he would do. They knew that he was most likely going to heal this man that had dropsy, and they wanted to see what he would do so that they could then, in turn, discredit him among the people and say, look, see, he's not all that good. You can't trust his teaching. But in verse 1, just so we can see how they were watching him, it says, in verse 1 of chapter 14, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of Pharisees, they were watching him carefully 
So we see that he was invited to this ruler's house, ruler of Pharisees. They were watching him very carefully. You don't watch someone that you trust very closely. You don't watch them and say, I want to see what he does so I can get him. You trust somebody. You're inviting them to your house because you trust these individuals or you, you're, you're friends with them. You, you live with them. You know them. They're watching him closely because they want to see what he can do so that they can point at him and say, look, he's not living according to what we say and what we teach. So, but instead, it backfired on them and Jesus revealed their hypocrisy. The Pharisees, they did not uh, do what they preached, essentially. They would say, you can't do anything on the Sabbath, but when it's convenient for us, We'll do what we want on the Sabbath. All of these accounts, I did this because I want to show how it's been consistently coming to and uh, showing the pride that's deep, rooted deep down in, in, in what Jesus keeps revealing. Because that's essentially what we're going to be on today is, is hypocrisy, but primarily pride. Pride's rooted underneath all of it. All of these accounts that we just went over that started from Luke 4, led up to where we are now, they're going to continue as we go. But it's all rooted in pride. Every single one of these things are rooted in pride. But I want to show just a few things that we saw just from these previous teachings. We saw the rejection of the Messiah, rejection of Jesus. They continue to reject him. And then we see that they are full of hypocrisy. They're not living up to what they preach. And then we see that they are full of pride and hatred by anyone or anything that will challenge their authority or their power. So it's all rooted in pride. And that's where we're at today. Jesus is is most certainly the one challenging their power because he's the only one that is truly humble. He's the only one that is worthy. He's the only one that is, is, the, is Christ. He's the only one that we can actually look at and say, he's, he's, he's right, he's humble, he's sovereign, he's the Lord. So now this week, Jesus is addressing this, this main issue, this main uh, this pride is what he's addressing, this and he gives uh, this lesson on pride and humility. He shows the contrast between of this is what you're seeking to do. It's all rooted in pride. This is what I'm calling you to live like, a humble individual of Christ. And, uh, and then so now look at verse 7. It says, now he told a parable to those who were invited. I'll stop there because I want to explain what a parable is and what a parable is not. Oftentimes it's, it's misunderstood of what a parable is and what it isn't. So first, what a parable is not, a parable is not an allegory or some kind of, of story where everything has a secret mystical meaning. That's not what a parable is. It's not something that, all right, there's some mystical meaning that we have to search and find. What it is, is that it's a story to make a point. A figurative story, example, or a metaphor. When Jesus gives parables, we see this often, that he, he's given this earthly story that has a heavenly meaning to it. So when we're looking at this parable, know that, that it's an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. He's addressing an earthly issue that is interpreted as a heavenly issue, which is pride. If you are full of pride, you will be humbled and not enter the kingdom of God. So that's where we're all. That's what a parable is and is not. And so that is how Jesus is delivering this lesson. Remember, I said it is a merciful lesson because he is teaching them that there is the right way to go, but it's still a lesson that shows the pride and humility, the difference, the contrast, and why they don't fit together. The main points that we have, or observations is what I'm calling them, is the observations that we have, there's three, and uh, the first two actually kind of coincide together. 
Sometimes we'll have them to where it's like verse by verse and, and uh, they're all kind of distinct, but this one, uh, the first two are definitely together in the same verses. The first observation is Jesus gives an example. He gives an example where he's, he's observing them. He gives the example of, of what's going on, what they see, how they're living, how they're choosing and electing their seats. And then point two is Jesus shows the assumption behind the example, still those same verses, seven to nine. He's showing within this example I've already given, this is the true assumption that they have, that they see themselves as righteous, that they see themselves as honoring of the most honored seat. They, they see themselves as, I deserve this spot. So he's showing that assumption that's underneath it and underneath that example or within that example. And lastly, the third point is Jesus explains how to implement his, his teaching or how to live according to the lesson he is teaching. Probably could have worded that a little better, but. Um, so now as we're, as we're going through, let's remember that this is all from last week. He's been invited to this ruler's house and uh, they've only invited him because they want to discredit him. They don't want to honor him. They want to discredit him. So this is, this is the context of where we're at right now. Uh, they were watching him closely. Remember verse one, it says, on, on the Sabbath, we, uh, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So they're watching him. The tables now have turned in verse seven. They were watching him closely, but now it says, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And so Jesus is now observing them. He's seeing how they elect their seats, how they choose uh, to sit at the, the table. So they wanted to see what Jesus would do. They wanted to, to discredit him, but now he's giving them a lesson. They wanted to teach Jesus a lesson. He's teaching them a lesson now. Um, so moving on, we see that they, they, again, they're trying to discredit Jesus to say, look, he's not upholding the law. He's not living according to the law. He's not doing what uh, Moses has taught. He's not doing this and that. We're teaching this, and he's not living according to it. So they wanted to say you can't trust his teaching because the Pharisees and the lawyers believe that they are losing control, losing influence on the people. They believe that they're, they're losing the power that they once had because people are following Jesus. They're, they're, they're listening to him. They're doing what he is, has, is teaching them, and so they're getting a little worried about it. And they want to discredit him and say, look, you can't follow this man's teaching. But as we, we just saw in verse 1, where they were watching him closely, and we, we just saw that now Jesus is watching them closely, I want to teach a little bit on this, this issue of pride. Where Jesus is, is moving on and, and he's teaching about this, this pride issue within this parable. He's showing them how they would elect the seats. I need to, to move in and kind of explain what this is talking about. And as we move on, I want to show you how I know that this is not simply just an explanation of how they view themselves before man or how they present themselves before man. Because I already said this is in view of God. This is a, a parable that gives an earthly issue or an earthly situation that has an heavenly issue. So I want to show you how we know this. That's why context, context matters. That's why we're going through books of the Bible. So next week, Pastor Sam's going to show us in, in much more detail of of how we see this and how this all goes together, but look to verse 14 and 15 in chapter 14, where Jesus is going on and he's continuing to give them just yet another lesson. But verse 14, I'm not gonna read all of, all of this, this uh, section, but I'll give you, anyways, he, he's talking to the ruler now. He's talking to the one who has invited everybody, and then he gives this teaching of don't invite the people who are gonna repay you, essentially. 
He says, invite the poor who can't repay you. But then he goes into the last part where verse 14, he says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So he says the resurrection, the resurrection of the just for a specific purpose. Because in verse 14, we see that the men he is teaching this lesson to, they know exactly what he's talking about. They're, they're, they know exactly what Jesus means. They're not in the dark. They know he's talking about heavenly things. So verse 15, it says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is here. He, he knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. They are not in the dark. They know Jesus is giving them a heavenly lesson. They know he's talking about much more than just presenting themselves before man. So that's where we're at. We know that that's what he's talking about. And then as we move on in this, I have to explain the seating arrangement because that's going to really give uh, the, the deep meaning to what they were assuming within this example. They're assuming their righteousness. So as I was studying, it's actually really, really interesting how they used to seat or, or sit during, during uh, events like this where they would invite people over. So just imagine a U. There's, there's a U starting from up here going down. The host would sit at the bottom of the U in the center. They would have three, they would have a, a couches all around that would seat about three. They would recline back. It wasn't like a chair or a couch that we have today. It was where they would recline back on their elbow and the, the table went into a U, okay? And so the host, the most important person, the one who has invited everybody, who has brought everybody in to host for them is sitting at the center of that U, the very bottom. They're facing in. And then the most distinguished people, the ones who were most honored would sit next to him. The most honored person would sit directly to the left of him. And then the second honored person would sit to the right and then it would continue to go down to you all the way down to the least honored person. So now as we're thinking through this, we see this is why Jesus has given that lesson of them rushing or hurrying up to claim the places of honor because they want to be seen as more honored to the host. They want to say, I want to sit as close to him as possible because not only will others that are sitting with me think better of me, but I will appear to be better even to the host. So now, does that make sense, at least with the you? Okay, pretty cool, interesting. We don't really have that today, uh, or at least I don't know that we do, but we do have some, some things that are, are still pretty similar. If we think of a wedding, think of a wedding. You have the bride and you have the groom, right? And how they select the people who will be in their wedding party is kind, kind of like who is more honored, right? Or who is closest to the bride and the bridegroom. You have the maid of honor or even a matron of honor, but then you have the, the best man, right? And so they are selecting these people because they have the greatest impact on their life. The best man will be directly to the side of the groom during the wedding service, and the maid or matron of honor will be directly to the side of the bride during the wedding service. So there is some kind of honor there, even still. I've also seen at weddings, you'll probably have as well, where they would have tables uh, specifically for the wedding party, right? They'd have a seat that says bride or groom, and then from there on, they would still sit in the way of order for the, for the service, where they'd have the, the maid of honor next to the bride and the best man next to the groom. So that we still kind of practice something similar to that today. And um, so it's not too different. But if somebody who was just invited to the wedding went and sat in the bride's chair or sat in the maid of honor's chair, they would be asked to get up and move because it's not for them, right? Okay. So that's kind of what we're seeing here. We're seeing this picture of those trying to select seats for themselves so that they can be viewed as 
more important or more holy or more righteous in the eyes of individuals. And so Jesus, Jesus noticed this. He noticed how they rushed to these seats of distinguishment, how they rushed to be seen as, I want to sit in this better chair so that I'm not all the way at the end. And so here's the first observation, which we're going to then break down into these verses, which we've already written down. Jesus gives an example. The example is this parable to show how they are looking for honor. Let's read verse 7 and 9 again. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Notice that these are, these are things that have already been said, or at least made obvious to the Pharisees and lawyers, that these are the things that they desire. They look for the places of honor. They try and elect or, or appear to be uh, more holy and righteous. In Luke 11, which we've already covered several, several sermons ago, in Luke 11, 42 through 43, Jesus said this to the Pharisees after they had tried to challenge him about his washings. Uh, ritual washings that he did not perform. He says this, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So I got to point out a couple of things. You can leave it up there for right now. Um, but notice that they, they love the, seat, the best seats in the synagogues and the marketplaces, this is the same thing that they're doing here. They love the best seats at this table that they're going to sit at because they want to be perceived as more righteous or more holy. But what they did neglect is, is pretty clear up in the beginning of this uh, verse. They neglected the justice and the love of God because they loved self and popularity more. They were thinking inwardly, thinking about themselves more than they were thinking about God. These men thought of themselves to be righteous men and uh, the one who is teaching them is the only righteous man. And he's the humblest of them all. And he's giving them a lesson on humility and pride. Which leads us to our second observation. We're moving quickly through that because these two go directly together. The second observation is Jesus shows the assumption behind the example. We've already read it, so I won't go into it again. But look down at it and just skim through it really and see this is an example. He gives an example through a parable, but within that, he's showing them there's an assumption about picking the best seats in this dining table, that they're assuming to be worthy of honor. In, Mark, uh, in Mark's gospel, some of Jesus' disciples do this. They assume the best seats, or they want to have the best seats. James and John, they were brothers, and they approached uh, Jesus, asking him to reserve uh, a place for them to the right and to his left. And so now with the context of this table seating, we know that the reason why they were asking to have this position, we'll read it in just a second, but the reason why they were asking to have this position is because they know that's the most honored seats. And the ones who are there are the ones who are the most honored. They wanted to be in that position. But look at Mark 10, 42 
through 45. This is after they have already come to request Jesus. Jesus then goes into a teaching them to teaching them on humility. Mark 10:42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for a ransom. The very ending of that is just the most beautiful testimony to humility. The Son of Man, this is Jesus Christ. He came creator of all things, sustainer. This is the reason why we live and breathe currently. And he came so that he would give his life for the ransom of many. But I do have to say this because I, I don't want us to get sidetracked or think, well, I'm not like the Pharisees or I'm not like John and James. I'm not like these individuals. Of course, I don't assume that. I don't assume this Bessie because pride can creep up really quick on us. So I have to say, this was convicting to me as I was reading and studying this. I have to remind myself about this all the time. But we shouldn't think of ourselves, well, I'm not like the Pharisees or I'm not like James and John. James and John literally walked with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They sat under his teaching constantly, and they still had this assumption filled with pride that they would sit to the left and the right. Or the Pharisees, of course, they were hearing his teaching all, all the time. They were seeing and witnessing the miracles that he did, and yet they rejected him completely. So they were all there present. We have his word here, so I don't want us to assume, okay, I'm not like them. So we, we just need to be aware of that. Um, and then in Luke, uh, Luke 18, there's a man who actually prayed the, a similar prayer. If you, we'll get to it one day. But um, <laughs> there's a man who prayed this, this similar prayer where he's praying that I would, uh, he, he basically says, thank you, Lord. I'm paraphrasing, but he's, he ba- basically is praying to God, thanking God that he is not like these sinners and tax collectors. Again, he's assuming that he is at the honored seat of the table. He's assuming that he's a righteous man. So pride can quickly creep up in the church. It can be seen in different ways. If you were to ask Pastor Chad, I, I, I texted him yesterday just to make sure I was right, but um, I, t- I, uh, I asked him about uh, just different biblical counseling things that he, he deals with, and uh, many of which will be depression, anxiety, anger, marital conflict. I mean, he could name, name them all off, and he, and he told me that the, the root of all these things is pride. There's a lot of different things that you deal with in counseling, but the root of it all is pride. Pride of different sorts, but pride nonetheless. And so within the church, it could be seen in many different fashions. We, we could be, it could be even in service, in the service role of, of I'm only serving in this role that, so that people see me serving in this role. Don't get me wrong, serving in the church is absolutely important, and I believe it's a biblical thing. We should do it. But the motive behind service is what matters. Are you serving because you want people to see you serving? Because you want people to see that you're, you're doing these certain things? Or are you serving because you're serving God and you're doing what is right for him? You want to please him. You want to work for him. You want to live for him. If that's the motive, then absolutely it's right. But if it's so that people see you, then there's a little twisted, uh, twisted uh, pride behind that. So the motive matters. And, uh, and so we must always be aware of pride. I want to read verse 11 to show uh, the danger of pride, why it's so dangerous. Uh, I know it may not seem like it's, it's dangerous, but it is, it's deadly. It's deadly. 
Verse 11 says this. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When he's saying the one who humbled or, or exalts himself will be humbled, he's not saying that you'll just be brought to a lower place. He, this is in reference to the, uh, God's judgment, meaning those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled because they will be under God's judgment. Those who live in humility before holy God, they will be exalted and they will see salvation through God. They will be in the kingdom of God. This is what we're talking about here. Very serious stuff. So that's why I say pride is dangerous. Pride is very, very difficult, very hard to, to see sometimes, but it is deadly. I want to show just what God's word says about pride and how we can see the truth of, of the danger of pride, okay? Proverbs 11, 2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. I'm going to go through some of these pretty quick. But Proverbs 29, 23, so write them down if you want. Proverbs 29, 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he, he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. It sounds a lot like what Jesus is teaching here. Those who, who have pride, they will be brought low or they will be humbled. And the one who is lowly in spirit, that's another, another saying for humility, uh, in spirit, will obtain honor. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word opposes there, in the Greek, it, it screams seriousness there. It's not just, okay, I'm, I'm, I don't necessarily agree with you. It's, we are at odds. You're my enemy. I'm, I'm your enemy. That's what this word here is saying. God opposes the proud, meaning he is not your friend. He is, he is your your judge, he is your judge when you assume to be in this rightful place. So that's a, that's a very serious word there in the Greek. Proverbs 16.8 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Pride goes before destruction. This is, this is talking about spiritual things, heavenly things. It's destruction. That's God's judgment. Uh, but pray, praise God. Praise God that we, we have a merciful God, one who, who has shown us mercy and grace, that has shown us the way, that has given us parables and lessons that we may truly humble ourselves before a holy God, which leads us to our last observation. Jesus explains how to implement or to live according to his teaching. Jesus explains how to implement or live according to his teaching. Not only is Jesus the best uh, person or teacher for this lesson, he's the best example of this lesson. He lives in humility. He is humble. He is the one who came and died on behalf of us. It's a death that we should have. So humility is not, I have to explain this. I'm actually at the end, I'm going to read an article that I read this morning on humility from Pastor John Piper. But in, uh, for now, I want to explain what humility is and is not. Humility is not putting yourself in a lower position or thinking of yourself in a, in a sense of, I need to, to live in a life of self-abasement. That's not what humility is. Uh, I can't remember the pastor who quoted this, but he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. So it's not my quote, but that's true. It's not thinking less about yourself, not saying, well, I'm not that good, or I can't do this, or I can't do that. What it is, is that you're thinking less about yourself and more about 
God and his kingdom and his work and, and the life that you should live for him and him alone. Uh, Jesus gives this, this merciful lesson to them, and he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's giving this example, and I want to show what true humility looks like through the life of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this is, this is about humility. He's explaining this is the life that you should desire to live, and he gives the example. The best example is Christ himself. He says, so if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, he's basically saying, pay attention to the life of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed him on on him, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That gives the picture of the creator, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. We see that in John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, where he has created all things, he sustains all things. He is all things good, and yet he comes to live in a humble state as a mere human being, although still God, so that he could die for the sins of those who hate him or the sins of, the sins of those who have rejected him or have turned against him. That shows humility, and that's what Paul is calling those who are listening to his teaching to, to live a life that is, is humble uh, in front of a, a holy God, 1 Peter 3.18 gives us just another image of the life that Christ lived. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It says, The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ is righteous. We are not. And he still came, suffered once for sins, and died so that we may be able to sit at the table, so that he would bring us to sit at the table. He would give us an honored place on his behalf because he's the righteous one. He's the only one that can give us that seat. And so what we see with pride, pride says, I deserve a seat at that table. Humility says, let me sit at your feet and learn. Let me sit at your feet and serve you. Or as John the Baptist said, I am unworthy to even untie uh, his sandals or hold his sandals. That's showing how worthy and how holy he is in comparison. And then thinking of the Apostle Paul, a man who once was full of pride, but in his last days of his life uh, lived a life full of humility. In 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithfully, or faithful appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, 
but I receive, I receive mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are, that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. After reading that, you have to say amen. He, uh, and that's why he wrote that. <laughs> um, but... But seriously, in all seriousness, the Apostle Paul, he was a man that was full of pride at one point. He was a man that was literally chasing down Christians, seeking Christians so that he could arrest them and hopefully his hope was to kill them, to put them to death. At one point, he was full of pride. He was seeking to climb the ladder of the religious elite so that he would be perceived as someone who could sit in this holy position or this honored position at the table. That was his desire, to make it to that point. And of course, God had a different plan for his life. But through that plan, the Apostle Paul saw his pride through everything that he wanted to do in his life. And then he answers or lives out his life for God in all humility. He gives that, that picture here and he gives God all the glory at the end. He's not looking for any accreditation. He's not looking for any praise here. He's talking about God and his glory and why he wants to live for him and what God has brought him from. He admitted that his, his life was full of sin, that he was depraved in his sin. And so we see the humility in the Apostle Paul. But I want to recap our last points and then uh, say a few things. I did say I'll read uh, this brief article just to leave us with uh, the picture of humility because ultimately this is what Jesus is giving that lesson for so that people would desire to live in humility before holy God. Our points where Jesus gives an example. This example was through the parable, the parable of what they sought to do and then observation two, uh, Jesus showed the assumption behind the example, their assumption of honor. They want to sit in the honored seats. And then lastly, Jesus explains how to implement or live according to his teaching, to humble yourself before a holy God. And that's why the main point of this text was the proud will be humbled and the humble exalted. Those who will inherit the kingdom of God, this is the picture that we're talking about here. Those who will inherit the kingdom of God are those who are truly humble, those who see their depravity, their sinful state before God. They are those who will say, I have no righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that is imputed to me comes from Christ. That's, those are the ones who will truly see the kingdom of God. And that's why I wanted to read this brief article because it does give us this picture from John Piper. He gives us this picture of what true humility is, and he, and he paints this picture of how we should live according to it. Um, the first point, he gives five different points, and I'm not going to read everything that he wrote in here, but the first one is, this is all about humility, so take this and, and, and listen to it closely. He says, humility begins with the sense of subordination to God in Christ. The sense of subordination to God in Christ. The disciple, this is from Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Matthew 10, 24. And then he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's 1 Peter 5, 6. The second point that he gives is humility does not feel a right to better treatment than Jesus got. They, they call Jesus Beelzebul. 
They accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. That was the ultimate, ultimate blasphemy, ultimate low blow to Jesus. They were calling him basically a servant of Satan. And, uh, and so that's what, what, what it is not. We are not looking to be treated better than Christ. He was treated the worst. He was killed. Matthew 10, 25 says, If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, this is Jesus, if they called him Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? That's actually from Matthew 10, 25. And then the third point that he gives is, uh, humility asserts truth not to bluster ego with control or with triumphs in debate, but as service to Christ and love to the adversity. Love rejoices in the truth. This is the truth of his word. We should have joy even in our humility, but it's joy in Christ, not joy in self-exaltation. And then point four, um, humility knows it is dependent on grace for all knowing and believing. This is by the grace of God only. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's from James 1, 2. And then the last point that he gives is humility knows it is fallible, meaning it knows that it's not perfect. We know that we aren't perfect, but we are willing to learn from it. We are willing to be wrong at times. I'm willing to be wrong, absolutely. But humility knows that it's fallible. We are mere human beings, and we can mess up and slip up and be wrong. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel, Proverbs twelve fifteen. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men by the gospel. That's, that's what we should strive to do. That's from 2 Corinthians 5, 11. And then he ends with humble, humbled under the mighty hand of God. We should strive to live uh, as humble men and women in Christ under the mighty hand of God. And so I want to I close with just briefly saying that if, if, if that's something that you struggle with, with, which honestly we all do, we all struggle with pride. We all struggle with it, but strive to live a life in humility uh, before and under the mighty hand of a holy God. If you, don't, if you don't know Christ, do exactly what Jesus taught in this lesson. Humble yourself before him, live a humble life, and ask that God would, would save you from your sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Um, Lord, just giving us your word so readily available, Lord. We, uh, we oftentimes take it for granted, but it's a beautiful thing that we have your word. And Father, I pray that, um, Lord, we would, we would strive to live lives um, humble before you, lives that make your name great, Lord, and that we would, we would just be humble to even be part of your family. Lord, I pray that we would, um, we would love you more and more each day, Lord, that we would strive to be better uh, children for you, Lord, that we would only do it for your glory, and your glory alone, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.